Turn in your Bibles this evening, if you would, to the book of James. As we continue our study in the book of James, looking at practical Christianity, Lord willing, we'll wrap up James chapter number 2 here tonight. Beginning in verse number 14, and work our way down through verse number 26, and talk about faith and works. James chapter number 2, verse number 14 this evening. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith and works. In the passages that we had looked at the last several weeks, James has just finished talking about how you and I are to be living that we ought to so speak and so do as those that shall be judged by the law of liberty. And we talked last week about how James made this argument to us about how all we have to do is break God's law one time, and we're guilty of all. And James was pointing out that the brethren that he was writing to there that had scattered from the church in Jerusalem they had this idea, they had this belief about themselves that they were good, that they were keeping the law of God and that God was looking down in pleasure upon them. But James was pointing out a particular problem that they had, that they had the respect of persons. And James was pointing out that this was a big problem, that they were judging, they were weighing their sin and saying, well, this sin isn't so bad and we're keeping God's law in every other area, so we're good to go. James was pointing out that God sees sin as sin. And all you have to do is break God's law one time, and you're guilty. You've broken it all. And James, he, uh, he admonished them, he challenged them that they ought to live. They ought to so speak and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. And we talked about how even as Christians, we're going to stand before God in judgment. He's going to try our works, and we don't want to stand there at the judgment seat of Christ at the end and have all of our works just be a pile of dust laying on the floor in front of us. 
and have to hang our head in shame and realize that we wasted our life, that we lived carnally, and that we have nothing to throw at Jesus' feet. We have nothing left for the life that we live. James has just finished talking about that, and we should remember that our actions matter. That no, we cannot keep the law perfectly. We've already failed. But how, as Christians, we ought to live as those whose works will be judged by God. And James continues on this evening he, talking about works, talking about the actions that we take, and specifically talking about the interaction between faith and works. Now, we know that our works do not save us. You and I cannot be good enough to be saved. And, you know, often we would come here to James chapter number 2 and reference verse number 10, where James himself has just told us that all we have to do is break God's law one time and we're guilty of all. But James is going to make an extended argument from verses 14 down through 26, talking to us about how our works really, they bolster, they go hand in hand, they're part of our faith. And he says over and over again, faith without works is dead. What doth it profit? When we think about faith, we need to define what faith is. And really, faith is taking God at his word. Faith is being convinced that God says it, and it's true. I, I believe what God has said. Works are simply the actions that we take, the, the things that we do, deeds that we enact. And so when we think about faith and works this evening, the first thing that we want to, men, that we want to notice that James mentions here in the text, we find in verse number 14, he says that faith without works is of no benefit. It's of no benefit. Verse number 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith, he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save him? So he poses a question to us. What doth it profit? What's the value? What, what monetary value can you place? What real value is there in someone who says that he has faith and he doesn't have works? Can his faith save him? He gives us this question, but then he gives us an illustration to illustrate his point. It's an illustration that you're most likely familiar with. He says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? So he paints a picture for these brethren. And the picture is this. We come in here on a Sunday night, and it's the middle of winter time, and I don't, who do we want to pick on? Brother David, we'll, we'll pick on you. It's the middle of wintertime, and we all came in with coats on, and we come in here, and Brother David, he's wearing a T-shirt and a set of shorts, and he's just shivering. And he tells us this story about how the heat went out at his house, and, you know, it's, it's been in the below freezing for the last two weeks. It's been a massive cold snap here in the area. I don't think it normally gets that cold here for long, extended periods in the winter. And so, you know, he's just freezing. And we find out that he hasn't had any food to eat for the last week. And so he's really hungry. And so 
we finish up, we wrap up our Sunday evening service, and we all shake Brother David's hand and say, Brother, be warmed and filled. And we all leave and go home. And Brother David's sitting here shivering and hungry, and I would say all of us have the means to help Brother David out in a situation like that. We have the ability, we may not be rich beyond all imagination, but I think all of us could probably go down to Walmart with Brother David and get him some food and get him a coat and help him out in some way. But the picture that James paints here is this happening, saying, hey, brother, be warmed and filled. Now, in that scenario, does that do you any, any good, any benefit? No, the, the words are meaningless. They're empty. It's, it's like one of you coming with a, a flat tire this evening. You, you just pull into church and you realize your tire is flat. You get out and you realize you have three flat tires. Well, now you're sunk. And all of us just kind of leave and we abandon you. And you realize your cell phone's dead. And on the way out, we're like, hey, good luck fixing your tire. Hope you get it fixed soon. Right? Those words... They're meaningless, especially if you have the ability to help. And that's what James is pointing out. This is the illustration that he's giving. It's, it's preposterous. You wouldn't say, I love you, and do something like this. This is something that should not happen in the body of Christ. It, it shouldn't happen in our church that someone would come in and need clothing and food and be one of us, and we would just leave and say, yeah, be warmed and filled. It's pointless. It doesn't do anything. It's of no profit. And this is the, the point that James is making. He's tying this illustration in with his question in verse number 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? He makes this statement then in verse number 17 that faith without works is no benefit. Verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. He says that faith that doesn't have works that go along with it is dead. It's of no value. It's alone. It's just like that illustration. The words, oh, they're nice words. They make me feel good but then I'm still stuck in the same situation. Your empty platitudes have faded long before you've left the building. They're of no value. Faith, all by itself, is of no real value. You know, this faith is a funny thing. Anyone can say they have faith. Anyone can say that they believe something. That's cheap. That's easy. That in and of itself, however, is meaningless. You know, I can say all I want that I believe a parachute will work. And I do. I believe that parachutes work. I've seen people jump out of airplanes, and I've seen them survive because parachutes work. But, you know, my, my faith in parachutes only goes that far. My faith in parachutes has never gone far enough for me to actually put it to the test, 
for me to actually prove that I believe in parachutes enough to throw myself out of a perfectly good airplane. Now, if I'm flying somewhere and you ever think about this on international commercial flights? That they don't have parachutes for you? I think about that. As you're flying across the Atlantic Ocean, I'm always thinking like, man, I guess I really wouldn't want to land in the, the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with a parachute, but I'd at least like to have that option. At least have, you know, a couple minutes of falling out of the sky to think about my impending demise in the cold, chilly waters. I don't know. Call me crazy. But I've never put it to the test. I've never proved that I have faith in parachutes by actually jumping out of an airplane. So I can say all day long that I believe in parachutes, but it's meaningless. It doesn't really mean anything until I stand on that threshold of the airplane and I leap putting it to the test, proving that I have faith. James says that faith without works is dead. It's of no value. There is no profit in it. So first of all, faith without works is of no benefit. Second of all, the next argument that he makes is that faith without works is invisible. It's invisible. There in verse number 18, he says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, this is kind of a a puzzling verse. You can get lost in it pretty quick. So pay attention here. He says, yea, a man may say. So somebody might say this. Somebody could make this argument. They might say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. So what James is saying is somebody could come and say, well, I have faith and you have works. And James says, well, okay, prove it to me. Prove to me that you have faith. Show me thy faith without thy works. He says, okay, you're saying that you have faith and I have works. Basically, what James is saying is you're making the argument that I don't have faith, but you do. So prove it to me. Prove to me that you have faith. There's no works that back it up. There's nothing that shows that you have faith. How are you going to prove to me that you have faith? You can't. All you can do is say, well, I really believe. I have faith. You know, I really believe that this bench is going to hold me up if I sit down on it. I really do. I believe it. I have utmost faith in this bench. I really believe that it's going to hold me if I sit down on it. You say, well, okay, prove it. Sit down on the bench, right? No, no, no. I, I, honestly, I believe that that bench will hold me if I, if I sit down on it. I've seen Brother Scotty sit down on it, and it's held him. So I, I think it's going to hold me. And you would say, okay, well, just sit down. Prove it. If you really believe it, prove it. That's the argument that James is making here. He says that faith without works is invisible. You can argue all day long, I have this faith, but if there's nothing that backs it up, you can't prove it. He says there at the end of verse number 18, and I will show thee my faith by my works. I'll show you that I really believe. I'll show you that I have faith by my actions. You can see 
I trust this bench. All of my weight is on it. There's no backup plan. If the bench fails, I'm falling. And it's a silly example, but really that's the argument that James is making here. That faith without works, it's invisible. It's meaningless. It's, it's, there's no value. There's no profit. It's dead. It's invisible. Third of all, he says that faith without works is dead. Once again, he repeats this line in verse number 19. He says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So he says there in verse 19, belief in God is good. You say that thou believest that there is one God. You say you believe in God. You believe that there's one God that's good. Thou doest well. It's a good thing to believe in God. But James is saying, you know, it's not impressive that you believe in God. It doesn't impress God. It doesn't, it doesn't impress James. It doesn't impress me if you believe in God. James says even the devils believe. Even the fallen angels, they believe in God. They've, they've been in the presence of God. They made a decision not to follow after him. They, Satan and his angels, they believe in God. But you'll notice in the text there, not only do they believe in God, James makes this argument. They have faith, in a sense, and their faith is backed up by what? There in verse number 19, the devils also believe and they tremble. They tremble. They tremble because they truly believe. They tremble because they know who God is. They know that He's real and they know that their demise is sealed. They know that their end is settled and they know that one day they're going to stand before God in judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. And because of that, they tremble. They're shaking in fear. They have a physical response because of their faith. James says that they have something that proves their faith. They have something that proves their belief. What about you? You say you believe in God. That's good. But is there anything that backs that up? Just saying, hey, I believe in God. That's meaningless. James goes on to say once again, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? It's just another argument that he makes. Faith without works is dead. You know, this is an interesting one. There's lots of people who say, I believe in God. I believe that God is real. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. And you know, in a certain sense, even as Christians, we can say, hey, I believe God. I believe that God is real. I believe that God judges sin. I believe that God is with us. I believe that as a saved individual, the Holy Spirit lives within my heart. But do you tremble at that? Does that affect your actions on a daily basis when you're presented with the decision to sin or not to sin? To fulfill the lusts of the flesh or to walk in the Spirit? 
It ought to. If it's true faith that truly recognizes who God is, there ought to be some weight to that. To the fact that, hey, I believe that God is real. If I believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, it ought to affect the way that I live my life. If, you, if I asked you, if you knew 100% for sure that Jesus Christ was going to return tomorrow evening, would that change the way that you live tomorrow? It ought not to. I guess in some ways, you know, if I knew 100% for sure that Jesus was going to return tomorrow, I probably wouldn't go down. I'm supposed to go down tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon and turn in my bus at the bus lot. I'm supposed to wash it up, chisel all the gum off of the seats and the floor and get it ready because i got to turn it in on Tuesday. Now, if I knew 100% for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow night, I probably would just forego that. I'd probably skip that whole exercise altogether. But the reality is that the idea behind that, right, is you and I shouldn't really live any differently because if we truly believe Jesus could come back at any moment, then we're going to live the rest of today. We're going to live tomorrow. How? As if he could come back at any moment. As if he could come back tomorrow night. That is 100% a possibility. The devils believe and tremble. Faith without works is dead. But then he goes on in verse number 21. James says that faith is completed. Faith is made perfect by works. Verse number 21 Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? When he had offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Faith is completed. Faith is made perfect by works. Abraham was justified by his works. It says there in verse number 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So the the actions, the works which Abraham did, the actions that he took after God commanded him to take Isaac, his son, his only son, and to offer him upon an altar... The actions that he took following that command proved that he believed God. That he believed that God would provide a lamb, even when, from our viewpoint, it doesn't look real clear that God's going to provide a lamb. If you stop and you put yourself in Abraham's shoes, it's looking kind of sketchy. That's a little weird. God, what are you asking me to do? God, I don't understand how you're going to do this, but you know what Abraham clung to? He clung to the promise that God had made him, that God was going to give him a son, and through that son, he would become the father of many nations. So Abraham, he he didn't have it all figured out. He couldn't wrap his mind around how exactly God was going to provide, but he knew this, that God was faithful, that God could be trusted, And so Abraham's actions that he took, they proved, they justified Abraham. 
Abraham didn't simply sit there saying that he believed God. He got to work obeying God. Abraham needed not only his faith. He didn't just sit there and say, yeah, I believe, I believe that God's going to make a way. I believe that God's going to provide a lamb. I believe that God's going to make me the father of many nations through Isaac. Rather, he, he got to work obeying God. But you know, faith is so, so important with the works. You think about this, Abraham's actions that he took minus the faith. Well, that's bad. If, if Abraham doesn't believe God, then all Abraham is doing is apparently looking for a way to get rid of Isaac. If Abraham doesn't believe that God really told him to do this and that God is really going to provide a lamb, then it's just a perverse action. It's just Abraham going, yeah, well, okay, let me go offer Isaac up and get rid of him. He's been really annoying and mouthy lately. We'll just, done. No, the faith is necessary. But the actions that he takes in line with the faith, they go hand in hand. Because of the actions that he took, along with the faith that he had, James uses the phrase here that by works was faith made perfect. Abraham's faith is completed. It's, it's perfected. It's made whole by the works that he took. In verse 23, we find that God honors Abraham's faith. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So because of the, the faith that Abraham had, the works that he, he took, the steps that he took, the actions that he made that backed up that faith, it says that God imputed to him righteousness. Abraham was justified in the eyes of God. God made a legal transaction by which he took Abraham's sin and he imputed his own righteousness to Abraham because of Abraham's faith. Because Abraham believed God, he was justified. He was made perfect in the eyes of God. He was imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he's called the friend of God. He's called the friend of God. In verse number 24, James goes on, he says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. You see, you and I, we have the same opportunity that Abraham had. The same opportunity to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. To have that legal transaction by, where, by which my sin is removed. In the eyes of God, He doesn't see me, the wicked sinner that I am. His judgment is no longer hanging over my head. But rather, when he looks at me, he sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's mind-boggling. That doesn't make sense to me. How God can look at me and see the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's not me. That's not in me. That's not of me. That's all of him. But we have the opportunity to have this happen to us by faith. But not just faith. Faith that is proven, faith that is backed up 
by works. Not that you and I can earn our salvation, but we've talked about, and James has argued very clearly how I can say I have faith, but if it never changes anything, if it never makes a difference, if I never do anything, then it's not really faith. It's not proven. It's not put to the test. Abraham proved his faith. And James says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. If you hold your place here and turn over to the the Gospel of John, chapter number 15. The setting here in John chapter 15, Jesus is getting close to going to the cross. His time is rapidly approaching. And he had some things that he wanted to tell the disciples. You know, I think if I was Jesus Christ, I would have had a whole lot of things that I wanted to tell the disciples. But he knew the end from the beginning, and he knew the heart of man better than I do, for sure. I don't know the heart of man. I don't even know my own heart. But Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. He's giving them some last challenges, some admonitions, some things that they need to know before he goes to the cross. And in John chapter number 15, verse number 12, he says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Notice what he says next. Ye are my friends. If ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You see, Abraham believed God. Abraham offered up works, and he was justified. He was called the friend of God. You and I have the same opportunity extended to us to be called the friends of God. If we do what? Verse 14 there. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I have commanded you. You see, action exemplifies faith. You and I have the opportunity to be called the friend of God by doing what He has commanded us to do. We have the opportunity to stand in the ranks of one like Abraham by doing what God has commanded us to do. Faith without works is dead. Verse number 25, he goes on with one more illustration. He says, likewise, back in the book of James, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? You think about Rahab and the position that she was in. We know from her account that They'd been hearing of the children of Israel for a long time. We know that they were scared, that they had heard of the works of God, they'd heard of the miracles that He had done, and they'd heard that His people were coming, 
And they were scared. And these men show up, and they come to Rahab's house, and she's given an opportunity. An opportunity lays before her. She can side with the people of God. She can have faith that they're going to honor the commitment that they have made to her. Or she can try to save her own people by warning them. Because these guys have come. But you know what she does. She doesn't try to make things better. She doesn't try to patch things up with her people. She doesn't try to go to the king of Jericho and say, hey, these guys came and we need to do something about it. We need to get out of here. She didn't, she didn't even try to run away with her own family. Can you imagine the faith that Rahab had? These two guys show up on your doorstep. They tell you about this. And you literally place your life in their hands. That's what she did. She literally placed her life and her family's life in their hands. That they were going to go back and they were going to talk to Joshua. And somehow, in the the chaos and confusion of hand-to-hand combat, her and her family were going to be saved. Now, I've never been in a battle. And I've never been in a battle with swords, thankfully. That just sounds all kinds of wrong. I don't like getting cut. And I don't like getting stabbed. I would much rather be shot than cut and stabbed with a sword and die and, oh, man. But it's chaos. Battle is chaos. Especially hand-to-hand combat all over a city. How are these two guys going to make sure that Rahab and her family are somehow saved in the midst of battle? I don't know. But yet she had faith. She believed the promise that they had made so much that that was her only way of escape. She didn't try any other avenues. And because of that, her and her family would escape. And not only that, she would end up in the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews. Not only that, she would be included in the very line of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. The faith that Rahab had. But she didn't just stand there and say, oh yeah, I believe. I believe you guys. Oh yeah. How do we know she believed? Well, by her works. By the actions that she took and the actions that she did not take, we know that Rahab had faith. Her faith was proven. It was proved by her works. James then makes one final argument in verse number 26. And fifth of all, we see once again that faith without works is dead. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James makes one last parallel to prove to us with finality that faith without works is dead. You think about a funeral At a funeral, you come to the casket of a loved one or a friend, and you stand there and you wish, in some ways, that you could talk with them once again. You wish that you could commune with them, that you could share moments with them again, but you know that you can't. And you would be super alarmed and shocked if they started moving in the casket. That would be very uncomfortable 
That'd be very discomforting because that's not natural. That doesn't, that's not supposed to happen. If someone is truly dead, we know they can't hear us. We know that we can't talk to them. We know we don't expect for them to respond because we know that they're dead. James here makes a parallel that faith without works is like someone who has passed away. They're like a dead body. You know, that person may have been a great friend or a wonderful family member that was very loved, but as their body lays there, we know that they are gone. We know that their body now no longer serves any purpose. The casket will be shut, it will be buried, or they'll be cremated. Either way, in not very long amount of time, what is left of them here on this earth is going to turn to dust. There will not be value, there's no use for their shell anymore. Because we know that they, the real them, has already passed on. It's just their earth suit laying there. So James says that faith without works is dead also. It's like an empty shell. There's no real value to it any longer. James has made several arguments here about how faith without works is of no benefit. Faith without works is dead. He said that over and over again. So this evening, what about us? What does this mean to you and me? Well, I think it's a good opportunity. It's a good time for you and I to stop and to inventory our lives. I believe that every one of us here this evening has a claim, has a testimony of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Being someone who says, yes, I have, I've been born again. I follow after Him. We would say, I have faith. But it's a good opportunity for us to stop and to examine our lives and to see, I say I have faith. Do my works match up? Do my works back up the claim that I have made? James says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is of no benefit. There's no profit to it. Faith without works is invisible but if our faith is completed by our works, if our faith is made perfect by our works, you and I have the opportunity to, like Abraham, be called a friend of God. We say we have faith this evening, this week, in the coming days. May our lives back up our claim. May our faith be proved by the works that we exhibit. May we ever live as if we truly do have faith that Jesus could come back at any moment. May we bring him honor and glory by the way that we have faith and the way that we act because of it. We said at the beginning that faith is the true conviction. The conviction that what God has said is actually true. And if you and I truly believe that tonight, then our lives... The way that we live, the works that we do, will back that up. If they don't, there's a problem there.
There's some inventory that needs to be taken, some examination that needs to be made. May we be folks that have faith and prove our faith by our works.